The Queen's Jewish Link presents the Jewish Living Podcast, the show that examines the many facets of Orthodox Jewish life. Here's your host, Izzo Zwerin. Welcome back. I hope you all had a nice Pesach, but now we are back to work. I've often been asked, why do you have a podcast? And as I've mentioned several times on this show, the answer is because I don't know things. I want to learn from people who do, and I can't be the only one curious. However, I do go into each episode with an angle. I am, after all, a human being, and I have my own opinions. I try to steer the conversation in a direction that I think I will, and by extension my listeners will, get the best information. This episode that you're about to listen to contains two firsts. Firstly, one refrain I get as a host is guests telling me how great a question is. That's pretty easy. Great question is, oh, that's a fantastic question. It's nice to hear that from people, and it boosts my own confidence. This episode will mark the first time that a guest has basically told me that a question I asked was terrible, which is a very difficult thing to do as a guest, and it actually made me respect him even more than I already did. Secondly, this is the first time that a guest has been able to change my mind about a previously held belief. Now, I'm not going to get into that so much right now. You'll see how that goes throughout the episode. Now, this show really opened my eyes to my own inherent biases. The topic of today's episode is the relationship between different sects of Judaism with our very popular guest. Hi, I am David Beshevkin. I am an educator and author. I invited Rabbi Beshevkin on to discuss this topic as I consider him to be one of the most influential thinkers in the Orthodox world. And I am proud to be only the latest person to have felt his level of understanding and caring for fellow Jews. And I hope that this episode is the same for you. David Bashevkin, I cannot express how long we've waited to have you on. And I'll give you a little bit of background on this. My producer, Srili, and I, when we sat down, at this, when we started conceiving of this podcast, we put together a list of people that we wanted to have on the show. And Srili put your name like at the top of the list. And at that point, this was in 2018, 2019, I had not heard of who you were. I was not on Twitter at all. Um, I had not read any of your books. And slowly but surely, he's like, Izzo, you got to get, you got to get D-Bash on the show. And I said, what am I going to talk to him about? He's like, anything, pick a topic and he will be able to talk about it. So I'm, I'm very happy that we're able to have you on. That's, that's far too generous. It's very sweet of you. Um, yeah, that's a really kind, that's really, really kind of you. I can't speak about anything. I give you a list of things I cannot speak about. <laughs> I hope we're not going to talk about anything about that today, but, uh, it's a joy to joy to connect. Well, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you you came on. Uh, he, the, the 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 actual impetus for get you on was the tweet that you sent out a couple of months ago saying uh, my goal is to be on every Jewish podcast. So <laughs> at that point, Srilly texted me. He's I like, we have to get him on now. now. Yeah. <laughs> and I totally forgot because I got so I got like a bunch of different requests that I'm trying to say yes to everybody, and my schedule <laughs> totally didn't work as you can see here tonight. That was uh, like two months ago. I yeah. uh, won't be able to do this now, but uh, yeah, no, it's fun. I love talking about life, about uh, Judaism, about ideas with uh, anybody, and you're doing wonderful things. So it's a pleasure to join. All right. So with that out of the way, the reason that I uh, before before we, we we get into the thing, um, if if you want to tell everybody 
about the 1840 podcast because I absolutely love that podcast. It's oh. uh, it's one of it's one of the ones that I look forward to coming out on a weekly basis. Yours and the Freakonomics podcast. Those are the ones that oh, I'm they're like, great. That I'm like, oh, those I, are the two ones I look forward to. I quote from the author of Freakonomics in my book Synagogue. I'll plug that a little bit, but um, he they're they're unbelievable. Freakonomics 1840 is a podcast about. Every month we we cover a different topic and we have different uh, podcasts. We have videos, essays, book recommendations. And the podcast really uh, veers into and goes towards the points of dissonance in Jewish life. Meaning, I think there are three points of dissonance that people end up grappling with in their adult years. There's theological dissonance, there is sociological dissonance, and there is emotional dissonance. Ideas and stories that we we're told in a healthy way we're true when we were younger. And then you grow up and you see life, uh, the Torah, the Jewish community functions in different ways than the stories you were told when you were younger. And we try to unpack and really examine it uh, with a different theme each month. And sometimes I, 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 it's just, it's part of my belief that going into places of friction is what propels and is a catalyst for growth and conversation. That that's that's a really great way to say it, and, and it happened to be like the theme that you're just you're touching on this month, which is uh, parent-child relationships and 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 the ups and downs. It's something that I'm connecting to tremendously. I I only have uh, my my oldest is six, so at this point, uh, we're not going through the things that maybe some of the things that you're touching there, but it's good to prepare for those things. And, and for my listeners out there, if you guys really want a really in-depth and well-thought-out podcast, unlike my own, please go listen <laughs> to the 1840 podcast. It's really, really uh, well done. That's so kind of you, and and you're doing wonderful things. And uh, yeah, this was a topic that I think it's near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. The question of everybody has been a child at some point in their lives, and figuring out the dissonance when your religious identity is different than your parents and how to navigate that has definitely struck a chord. Absolutely. And uh, that transitions into the conversation that I want to have with you today, because one thing that you do very well in your podcast is that you take from a lot of different points of views, a lot of different backgrounds. I know that later on this month, actually, by the time this podcast airs, you'll have already uh, sent this one out. Um, I'm looking forward to the one with the, with the uh, is it a conservative or reform rabbi? The Frisch family. It's a reform rabbi who's a mother and her son is learning in the mirror. Yeah. Mirror so... Yerushalayim. And you'll see the recording. It's one of the poorest quality recordings we have because <laughs> he's, he's learning in the mirror with a flip phone. It's not, a, it's not just a joke. Right. I know. Absolutely. So um, I'm looking forward to that one a lot. Um, and that leads us into today's topic, which is kind of a uh, uh, an overarching issue that I've experienced with various sects of Judaism throughout the course of my life. And that is the way that each sect of Judaism views each other. Um, and it's it's not necessarily just opposites. When we think of that, we might think of the relationship between Svardim and Ashkenazim, Hasidim and Litvish, or, or uh, Yeshivish and modern, but it, it could be any of those things. And unfortunately, I've noticed, uh, I, I, I'll i give you a little bit of my background because- uh, Yeah, I was about to ask. Yeah. I don't so, know anything about your so background. So I went to a very yeshivish high school, a very yeshivish, okay. but a, a, a fairly yeshivish high school. I I now consider myself modern Orthodox. With whatever. Do you want to name drop the name of the high school? I will name drop the name of the high school. I have no problem. I, I, have, I have no ill will towards them. I had, great, I, I had a great four years experience. It's Yisoda Yashurin in Queens. I know Yisoda. Yeah. Okay. So I went there. Um, one of the few that 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 wore a blue shirt 
throughout my course in high school. Like everybody, most people were wearing white shirts and there was a handful of us that stuck to the blue. So that, that's where it was. I now consider myself more, uh, more, more to the, uh, a modern side. I also spent five years working in Williamsburg. So I have a nice interaction with the Hasidic community in Williamsburg. And I've noticed throughout my travels uh, in various New York communities anyway, that there not only are we insular in terms of you know, Jews, but each community is very insular and has a preconceived notion about what other communities are. And it often brings off this, there too X, there's too much X going on, or there's not enough Y going on. I'll explain, I'll explain it this way. Let's talk about, uh, I'll, I'll start with negative stereotypes. So in, in the modern world, maybe the yeshivish world, somebody may refer to somebody from the Hasidic world as, I, I hate these terms so much, but I'm using them just to illustrate a point, uh, a yoyli or a tuna bagel. I hate those terms so much, um, but they are descriptive terms that people use. Um, there's other descriptive terms that I absolutely hate. Uh, a, a hot khani is a terrible term that I hate. Yikes. A, um, and, and I'll even go as far as the, 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 the far, I did a little bit of research into this. I just want to make it clear to your listeners that I'm remaining quiet until you yes. finish unpacking this. I, I disagree with a lot of what you're saying already, but I'll wait for you to That's unpack. Fine. That's fine. And uh, the, the other thing that I, the, the, other na- the other name that I, that I, that, that, that I don't hate as much, but uh, it, it just illustrates how far back this goes. The Sephardi name Ashkenazi. They're like, I always wondered how do Sephardim get the name Ashkenazi? Like, no Ashkenazi person I know is named Ashkenazi. Um, and I, I looked into it, and from my research, I found that there, it was a derogatory term for light skinned Sephardim um, back in like where Sephardim came from. That is what I've discovered. There's a Rabbi Ashkenazi from the neighborhood that I came in from. Um, and I asked him. Ashkenaz goes back like a couple centuries. Like. Right. This name goes back a long way. Yeah. So just because they're named Ashkenazi now doesn't mean that that's what they were named. Uh-huh. Okay. That, that, that's where it got, but their ancestors, that's where it came from. So the first, the first point I want to bring out is, are, are these nicknames, are these names bad? And do they send off some sort of a negative uh, stereotype for the way that we just view each other? I don't want to start with that question because you All had right. too many. You had too many um, in the way that you phrased it. I think you had too much that you wanted to unpack. Mm-hmm. You spoke about insularity. I look at again. Insularity is a little bit of a loaded term, and I don't view any community. And I've been in rooms: Jewish, non-Jewish, Orthodox, non-Orthodox, Hasidic, Sephardic. I think every room, more or less, has insularity. Sometimes are there rooms that are more insular that know less about the other? Maybe, but I need to see a real study to figure out if that's in fact the case. I think that there's a question in general about what role does communal affiliation play at all in religious life? And you need to understand, and this is actually the theme that we spoke about in 1840 this month, that everybody has three levels at least three levels of identity. We have individual identity. I'm David Beshefkin. I represent nobody. I speak on behalf of nobody but myself. We have familial identity. I'm also a Beshefkin. If I say something really crude on this podcast and by some unknown miracle, my mother finds out, she's going to let me know. And if my dad finds out, then I'll probably disappear and start a new life in a different country. Uh, And then we have our communal and organizational identities. I'm affiliated with many different organizations with 
tablet, with the OU, with NCSY, with Mishpacha Magazine, with Yeshiva University, with, um, I don't know, Academic Studies Press, with Israel Bookshop. I mean, I've got a lot of, with TNEC, I've got a lot of communities that I affiliate with. What's the point of communal affiliation? I think everybody agrees. But I don't know if you want such a long-winded answer. If you want to cut my mic or say this was a terrible mistake and go <laughs> for it. I'm about to give a very long-winded, somewhat um, overly intellectual, uh, needlessly intellectual. It's not intellectual. It's just like, it, it, it's an analogy I've thought about a lot. What is the point of our communal affiliations? I think most healthy people are in agreement that, what really matters is your individual identity and your familial identity. Like nobody looks at me and says, hey, there goes Tinek. I mean, some people do it, but they, they're usually half joking or they're usually morons. They're not uh, thought out. Most decent, honest people, it really comes down to who you are as an individual and, and maybe a little bit your the context of your family. So what's the point of communal affiliation? And the analogy, here comes the needlessly complex analogy that you may not like, but the analogy I like to use is why is it necessary to have currency? Why, why, why do we have a monetary system that includes currency? You can answer. Why, why do we, I mean, that's the easiest way to trade goods and services. Because what's the alternative? Bartering. Bartering. And why does bartering not work? Let's think about why bartering doesn't work. I mean, bartering, you'd have to show up. But let, let's talk it out. You'd have to show up with a cow. Okay. And you have to say, hey, this is my cow. It's worth 12 sheep. And the person who's trading sheep, or it's worth 100 gallons, 100 gallons of oil. So you'd have to be an expert in cows. You'd have to be an expert in, in, uh, in oil. You'd have to know what to do with the cow. You'd have to lug the cow around and actually explain what the cow is. I think that when it comes to individual identity, it's almost like bartering. It's really hard to explain who you are and when you introduce, if you notice when you introduce me now, I said educator and author. I didn't even mention the organizations, like who has the time for it? <laughs> I, I, I wanna cut, people want to ultimately reveal who they are and be evaluated on their own basis. The problem with that is, is that it's really cumbersome to invite people into your personal world. We'd have to get to know each other. You'd have to know what my background is. It's very common. It's like schlepping around the cow. You have to know where I went to camp, where I went to school, what my parents are like, what my siblings are like. So what communal affiliation allows you to do is it's like a dollar bill. It represents a certain value. I affiliate with community, with organization X, Y, or Z. I don't have to schlep around the cow. And it, it's a summation of, it's an approximation of some of my values. That doesn't mean that the value is the dollar bill. The dollar bill is a piece of paper. What gives it value is what you invest in it, what you're allowed to trade for. So when somebody says, I'm from Lakewood, I'm from Teaneck, I'm, I'm an OU person, I'm a Hoverbay person, I'm a, I don't know, I'm going to run out of examples. I'm a tablet Jew, as somebody once said. You're not literally, you're not literally the Orthodox Union. I mean, give me a break. If you've ever met me, Lord knows I'm not literally the Orthodox Union. Saying, you want a close approximation of some of my values? I guess this is it. But I would much rather schlep around the cow, which just happens to be a big schlep. I'd much rather you understand what it brings to the table. I think that the nicknames that go around, that to come back to your original question, it's not ideal that we need any communal affiliation. It's a necessary evil because we can't barter our identities or people wouldn't be able to understand our universe. It would take 
it's six hours to meet somebody. Instead, it's much easier. Like, hey, where'd you go to camp? Oh, I went to Morasha. Okay, we, we could talk. I went to Dora Goldie. I went to Camp Aguda. You could like now approximate it. You don't really know the actual worth, but it's a good approximation like that dollar bill. So what about the nickname? I don't have a major issue with, with nicknames when they're a sign of affection. And so long as people know the difference between the nickname and the actual individual who's affiliating it. As long as you know that the community is an approximate value, then I think it's fine. The only nickname I was ever called, and it's by a family who I love, I'm not gonna mention who they are. They had a young child, he was about 11 years old, and he called me a snag, which is short for Miss Nugget. I don't know if you've ever heard that. It's short for Misnag, and it goes around in certain uh, certain sects of Hasidus. I happen not to like the term. To me, it reawakens unnecessary divisions that wouldn't be there. But I don't know. Like if when people make jokes that I'm from Teaneck, even though I lived most of my life in the five towns, and I don't even live in mainland Teaneck, I don't know. It doesn't really bother me. But that's because it's predicated on my deep abiding knowledge that no community or organization is ever going to be a summation of who I am. All right. So and you're like, oh, okay, easy, easy does it with the intense answers. No, 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 no. This is, this is perfect. This is exactly what I wanted because so first of all, let, let's, let's unpack a little bit what you said. The, the notion that we are, that we identify ourselves by a community or is one of the three things that you mentioned. So yes. individual family, community, Yes, but that that is definitely not exclusive to Judaism, for sure. Not. That is that Correct. is that is a universal uh, yeah, thing for every Democrat, Republican, uh, whatever, I don't know, pro life, anti life, whatever country NRA. you're from. Yes, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, but because of that, when you see somebody, and uh, I'm going to use Orthodox Jews, and uh, just for these examples, because I don't want to go into other territories. If you see somebody walking down and they're dressed in a certain way and they, and, or they talk a certain way, you automatically have all of these initial assumptions about the person. It's not sure. It, yes. But, and, and yes, that also happens outside of the Jew Jewish community. But my issue is, has always been, we spend a lot of time in our community and I, I've, I've written so much about uh, anti-Semitism. I just think that there's... Where do you write, brother? I write for the, the Queen's Jewish Link. What am I supposed to call you? Izzo? Izzo, yeah. Sure, why oh, not? that's great. What's yeah. that short for? Israel. Fascinating. No, Nobody's called me Israel in years except for a handful of people that knew me from like elementary school. Well, not school. when they have Izzo to choose from. Yeah, I mean, why would on. you? Yeah. <laughs> this is what my parents had in mind when they named me Israel. Like, one day he'll be called something else. Um, <laughs> so... When you're walking down the street, finish, finish your thought. I'm sorry. So, uh, sorry. Um, so... Now, 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 now my, my train of thought was derailed. Um, right. So you have all of these preconceived notions about somebody just by what you see on the surface. Can't that lead to certain negative stereotypes? Like I think this about this entire community. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an ex exact example of some things that I've, I've discussed with people in my community. I've asked people that I know personally. What's your community? I'm, I live in West Hempstead. I live in West Hampstead. Oh, I'm from Queens. Get out of town. Yeah. I love West Hampstead people. Queens and West Hampstead are the best. I, there's a lot of people that move from Queens to West Hampstead. I, I'm, I'm originally from Queens. Because they're chillin towns. They're towns that don't have a distinct stereotype or character. And I like that. I like I, that. I, I could have a whole conversation about that exact point, but that may be for a different time. Uh, that exact point. And, and it actually ties in a little bit for what here. And maybe I'll, maybe I'll close with that at the end. But... Um, I've had conversations with people that I know personally, and I've asked them, 
okay, you have you, you picture the future. You're 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 five year old kid, five year old son right now. Okay, twenty years from now, I'm gonna tell you that he is one of the two following things: he is not from, or he is learning in Kolo full time for the foreseeable future. Which one would you rather? And the answer is debated. It's not there. There's 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 going back and forth. For me, I I mean I I will come out right right now and say it. Like I'd prefer them learning in Kolo. I'd rather them stay from than not be from anymore. That's my my personal opinion. Um, but the reasoning that I find that people don't like it is I don't want to have a kid where they don't feel comfortable eating in my house for cautious reasons. Um, I would rather him have some sort of a positive out, output to society, things like that. I think that's that's a problem. It's a way that we look at another community that we just assume that that is the case in a community that it's from the modern Orthodox world. And and I've had this situation in when I, when I was part of the yeshivish community where they were like, would you rather X or Y? And people were not so not so happy about their child turning modern Orthodox. Um, I don't see those two issues related. I okay. think the question of the would you rather game with uh, with kids is it's cute. It's very theoretical. It's ultimately a fairly dumb game. Um, it, it totally, meaning you're projecting outwards about your own child with values that usually the people who play those games uh, don't have exposure to either community in a healthy way, or they they just don't. There, it's it's a game of 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 ignorance almost. Like I can't. I'm trying to think. Like, would you rather be a um, I, 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 I'm trying to figure out the right analogy. It's like trying to think of two professions, uh, both of which you know absolutely nothing about. You're just going to pick the one that you're more familiar with. And I think right. that people who are playing those games usually don't know anything about what it means to learn in Colel or anything what it means to actually, I don't, I don't even know what it means to not be from. Like they're a different denomination. Right. They've renounced Judaism. It can mean so much. I don't think that those two are connected. I think that, there's something normal and healthy about the way uh, communities self-identify and the way communities look at themselves. And I think it's normal and natural for people to prefer what's familiar. I think that's all over the place, everywhere, all the time. But I don't, I don't think that there's overall a demonization of the other in the Jewish community, the Orthodox community, anymore that has been in other communities just because I've been in both rooms. Everybody's demonizing one another or not demonizing until you build that actual personal, uh, actual personal connection. And I, it, it doesn't bother me. I, I, I think that, you know, I, I heard this once from a, a teacher of mine that inclusivity can lead to exclusivity and exclusivity leads to inclusivity. If a community is for everybody, it's probably for nobody. But then it's for nobody. Like, who, who's it for? Like, it doesn't have any values. It's not for anybody. Inclusivity. This is for literally everybody. Not you know. Th then what's it for? But exclusivity, not in a discriminatory, negative, malicious way. But like, this is what it's about. This is what we stand for. This is what we prioritize. Like, beautiful, wonderful. Every personality has its own personality, and I don't look at that as a problem at all. I think when people try to have everything be on equal standing and everything be exactly the same, then you end up being for nobody. And I think that that's what people find frustrating. I think people accuse me of that and they find it very frustrating. 
but I'm the exact opposite. I just let everybody kind of operate on their own terms and I don't publicly police on the communal level. I don't do it. So I don't think that it's an, in, in my opinion, I don't think that it's an inclusivity versus exclusivity thing. I think it's an exposure thing. And you mentioned, and this is, and, and this is, brings back perfectly what you said about Kew Gardens Hills before, about Queens. Uh, I'm from Kew Gardens Hills in Queens, but it's a lot of different Queens communities. There isn't really a Queens identity that, you, oh, I'm from Queens, then I automatically consider you to be X. Because where I was growing up, there were so many different types of, of Jew in my community, there were there were there were all these types of shuls from the conservative temple on Main Street all the way up to the Hasidic Stiebel, right? So we had this wide variety of of different type of, of person that everybody was exposed to a little bit of each other. When I consider a lot of other communities, even even to, to a lot of extent, the one that I'm currently in, it's more um, one note. There, there may be like small varieties here and there, but um, I, again, I worked in Williamsburg. That's a one-note community. In my, there, there, are, there are small differences between different shuls, different, different sects of Hasidim that are there. Um, but you don't get the exposure in, in growing up in Williamsburg to a wide variety. You don't get the exposure. I, I, I don't know Teaneck so well, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know that. I don't either. <laughs> I, I would say that you grew up in the five towns. I think there's more of a wide variety there. Maybe when, maybe, maybe when we were growing up, maybe when we were younger than there is now, but I, I don't think that there is that, that you need to be on an equal playing field. I think that we will learn more about each other just by being together as opposed to being separate. No, I don't think so. I, I think exposure is a part of the issue, but it doesn't mean you have to actually live together. Like I live in Teaneck, New Jersey. I think it's much more a function of personality and openness and empathy to other ideas. I don't think it's a function of geography. I don't think it's a function of like, well, maybe if we had like, like every community, like Boca Raton is famous for this. Because I'm from Goldberg, my cousin, I'm obligated to say, and I love him. In, 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 in a community like that, where you have the Sardim and the Ashkenazim, the Hasidim, old David, that's a nice model. It doesn't have to be that model. I, I have connections to Williamsburg and Borough Park, even though I don't live there. And why do they need to dilute that what they've built over many, many decades, because like in, in, in the name of what? So people understand them better? Like, I don't think that's, that's their obligation. I think, and I don't think anybody's obligated to be a broad person. I, I genuinely don't. Like I prize myself in being somewhat of a broad person. I have a lot of connections. I think for most people, it drives them crazy and don't bother. Like you could stick to your, why not? Live in uh, Lawrence, West Hempstead, Chicago, wherever it is. Have your your block of, of of land and your family, and focus on that. Not everybody needs to contain multitudes, and I think that the pressure that we see to be able to understand everybody that that's not a function of community. That's a, if anything a function of the online culture, where we're exposed to everything and we feel like we need to have an opinion on everything. Who cares? Like. What, why do I like, why can't people live in an enclave? I don't see that as problematic at all. That's the beauty of America. And if you want to be exposed to them and you have the personality or the well being and the empathy and the, all the things that are required to understand communities outside of your own, great, go for it. And that's wonderful. But like, I don't think anybody needs to think of them as less than or different because 
I don't know. I grew up. I know the 10 blocks that are around me. You could be a great Jew, a great human being, a great everything, and not be broad. And like, I almost want to sing the, as somebody who spends a lot of time online connecting with groups of people who all criticize one another and all kind of are frustrated by me because I don't take clear sides on any of this, like, save yourself the hassle. Avoid all that. Like, it's not necessary. I think you could live a very fulfilling life without the exposure to every single flavor. There's this wonderful story from the Pshraga Feivel Mendelovich. I, 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 that's where I remember it. It's quoted a lot of people's names, where he, he was asked, why is it that Hasidim and Misnagdim, like wh why they stop fighting? They all go to the share institutions together. And he said, it's like a, it's like a father-in-law who has two sons-in-law. One son-in-law insists Everything needs to be flashings. Everything needs the best meat, the best steak, the best charcuterie board. He has another son-in-law. Everything's got to be dairy. It's got the best, an omelet station, blintzes, pastas. Everything's got to be dairy. And then one day, the father-in-law loses all of his money, loses all of his money. And now they all have to eat together at the same table eating potatoes. There's, there's a position of strength that allows the Jewish community to operate in different communities. There's got, it could be a borough park, it could be a Williamsburg, it could be a five towns, Chicago, LA. And that's beautiful that we've built up ourselves to have a Jewish community with different places that, that don't interact and don't totally understand each other. We have that natural affinity, but I think that that's fine. And I think that sometimes the, the need for exposure isn't always from a position of strength. It can sometimes be a position of insecurity or somebody who's not able to comprehend it. And I would just say like, put your, take your boxing gloves off. It's okay. You don't have to understand every single Jew. It's a big, it's a big nation. You should try to love the, the concept of the Jewish people. You don't need to understand and know everybody. That's okay. Hmm. Well, so I'll, I'll transition a little bit into uh, something that we spoke about a little bit before. And recently- Was that wasn't... a deeply unsatisfying answer? No, that was that was an amazing answer. I just don't have any follow-up. Like I, I literally don't know what to say to that. Like that, that's, that really makes a lot of sense because I'll, I'll, I'll explain it this way. I'm the type of person that I'm a, I'm a very, I don't want to do my own horn. I, I, I talk to people. I, 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 go, I go out and I, I try to learn about people um, uh, I'll give you this example. I, I worked in a, in a company, I'm not going to mention what a company was. And I, my, my lunch crew was a, was an Asian gentleman, a, an Indian gentleman and a, uh, a Lubavitch woman. Like that was who I ate lunch with every day. And we used to explain each other uh, like different things about our own cultures, because I would ask I'm like, okay, what, what, what is, the, what happens in your culture at this time, like I, I want to know these things. I try to learn about about how Muslims pray. I try to learn about great types of things. And I guess I'm projecting what I expect, what I expect from me onto what I expect from other people. But you're, yeah. but you're saying that's that's not what. Why do I? Why should I do that? Who cares? You're saying that more of a a live and let live. You want to learn about the other cultures? Go learn Go about the other it. cultures. You don't want to learn about the other cultures? Don't learn about the other cultures. My, I'll my, let you on insider secret. My wife, who I love deliberately, she doesn't know anything. Like she's just not interested. And like I have to like sometimes coach her. Like, oh, somebody's coming over now. I gotta, you know, just know FYI, a little background. But she doesn't care, and I love that about her. Right. She just like I'm not into like I. I she, no, she grew my, up in Fairlawn, you know, just like <laughs> this is simplicity. I like that, and I, I think I, that too much of us are like 
have this desperate or this like sense of responsibility to like embrace all complexity on everything. And I'm just like, oh, sometimes it's overrated. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you uh, about, it's sort of related, the, there was a, and you said you, you have a relationship with Tablet. So recently there was an article about the yeshivish language and I actually wrote an, a follow-up uh, or, or a response to it. Yes, that that's good. And actually, is uh, we're we're recording this on uh, on March 11th. Um, this is probably not going to air until uh, after Pesach. But um, oh wow, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I, my my article is is out now, explaining why I don't think that the the, the article on tablet about the Shivish language was accurate. I wanted to see if you if you wanted to share your thoughts about about whether we should or should or should not be speaking yeshivish uh, within our own communities using from speak uh, to describe certain things. My wife told me, she's like, there is no word for mechatonim in any other language. So I, I don't even know how- she's, I would... she's stealing from my top five list. We, <laughs> did, we did a top five list on that and uh, you go ahead and check out top five lists of Jewish character and characters available in a bookstore near you, collected <laughs> by Mishpacha Magazine articles. Um, I, I could code switch, uh, in writing and in speaking, meaning I can talk depending on the audience I'm speaking with. I'm not really sure what your audience is. You didn't tell me, but I've tried <laughs> to be careful not to use any, uh, Yiddishisms or yeshivish. I love insider speak. I think it shows the strength of a community. I like insider jokes. I think that very much speaks to the character that's built in the community. I think my biggest issue with yeshivish is that it can oftentimes hinder our ability to communicate to the outside community, particularly in writing. That's a distinction I made, and that's a distinction that was said previously by Rabbi Emanuel Feldman. Rabbi Emanuel Feldman wrote an article in Tradition called Tefillin in a Brown Paper Bag. It's an article where he basically says, I was on a flight, and I was on an airline flight, and I saw, uh, I was reading The Economist, and he said the prose in The Economist was so crisp and so clear. And then I opened up some Jewish publication. It was garbled. It was like half Yiddish, half English. I think that the Jewish community is hurt by our relative, um, I don't want to say inability, but the, the writing, our writing skills in our community is not as strong as it should be. And that both, number one, hinders our ability to speak outside of our community, which is important. But more importantly, it, it hurts the very quality of, of our ideas. Meaning the article's called Tefillin in a Brown Paper Bag. And it's called that because he says, you would never put your Tefillin in a brown paper bag. You would never bound your Sifre Torah with coarse rope. So why is it that the words we use to encase our ideas are so coarse and ugly sometimes? And I find, and that's not, it's not, it's not a knock on Yiddish, it's not the syntax, the grammar, the ideas that emerge from sloppy structure are not going to be as magisterial as something that is expertly communicated. And that's true if you're communicating in English, in Hebrew, or Yeshivish. When I write for Tablet Magazine, I try to write a crisp English, even though I do use Yiddishisms in there sometimes. When I write for Mishpacha Magazine, I also try to write a crisp yeshivish and i'll include i'll have words like geschmack because the audience knows it but just because your audience knows words like geschmack or ah or sushel or speltsu they know the difference between the two that's not a, again i don't know if your listeners know all those words yeah they assuming, should assuming they do 
then that's not a reason to encase our ideas in sloppy ways. And I think sometimes we fall under the guise of, oh, it's more yeshivish, it's more Hamish, it's more varm, or whatever words we use to gloss over the fact that the idea itself is just sloppy. And the great Rabbanim, and they were not writing in English, like the Stipler. The Stipler was a magisterial writer. Rev Zevin. Rev Zevin was a generational writer. I mean, once in a hundred years, you find a writer like Rev Zevin. The crispness of their ideas transmits much better because they had a mastery over the language. And that language could be yeshivish, but, but have a mastery, especially when you communicate in writing. Exactly. I, I, will, I will also say that in a, I was an English major in college, and in a previous life, I was an English teacher. And I taught in a, in a fairly yeshivish high school uh, for a couple of years before I switched careers. And it, I taught an 11th grade class, and I'll never forget this, and I remember exactly which kid it was. We had a, I, I instituted a, um, a research paper. And we, I was going to teach you how to write a research paper, to do research, to cite correctly, to, to formulate your ideas, to make basically a thesis. And this way you'll have that in case you decide to go on to college. And I'll never forget there was one kid who had these amazing ideas. And I didn't know exactly which topic it was. But at one point, he cited two different experts on the topic he was talking about. And he said, this one holds like the other one. And I said, that... Is... On the same top five list. Buy my book, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Buy that book. So I have, I have upstairs waiting for me to read. I have Synagogue. Is that the book you're talking about, or is that the nope, other one? Nope, that's not the book I'm talking about. Oh, shame on you. Shame you on me. You agreed to come on this. You didn't <laughs> buy my other book. Top five list of Jewish character and characters. And there's an entire section. There are top five lists on these very cute nuances and idiosyncrasies in the Jewish community. And there's an entire section on on Jewish, Jewish words. words. Jewish words, top five uniquely Jewish words is the top one. Top five Jewish grammar mistakes. Uh, it's all there, uh, and you want to get a copy of that. It's a I'm going to get a copy of that after, right after I finish synagogue. Uh, uh, that means a great deal to me that you even have it. So thank yes, you. I, 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 uh, I peruse your Amazon page. Um, so usually at this point, we have a sometimes used segment called Davar uh, Acher, where I usually ask somebody, all right, you could talk about anything else you want to talk about. However, you are very much in the public eye. You have your own podcast. You generally talk about whatever you want to talk about. It's not like I'm yeah. putting you on the spot, but I'm going to borrow one of your ideas where you ask a, a series of questions to your guests and then I'll sure. let you go. So I'm not going to use your questions because I know you're fascinated with sleep and I know <laughs> you, if you had a sabbatical, I know those are phenomenal questions. I'm going to ask you three questions. Um, right. they're, they're more tailored towards you. All right. What is one question that you've always wanted to be asked, but nobody ever asked you? I love the question, where do you feel most misunderstood? Hmm. It's one where of my feel... favorite questions. Barbara Walter says it's the best interview question. All right. So and where do you feel question. you're being most understood? See, this is I'm, easy. I, no, easy we follow. don't have enough time to All right. that. The reason why it's a great question is because it tells you both the inner conception of a person and the way they perceive how other people perceive them. Hmm. So it's like a double-tiered question. It unpacks a lot. Right. That is, that is a very deep way of asking that. I like, no, Barbara Walters, who knew? Um, actually, she's like one of the greatest interviewers of all time, so that doesn't yeah. make sense. Um, who's your dream guest for your podcast? Maybe somebody that you have no prayer of getting on, but like, I want this person on my podcast. Living? Living, yeah. Some, somebody that's actually possible, but not really possible. That's a great question. Who's somebody I really, really want to talk to? Hema Kodrin, maybe? 
I don't know who that is. She's not famous. Judd Apatow, either a comedian <laughs> or a, either a comedian, a major comedian. Oh, no, no, no. Lorne Michaels. Lorne Michaels. Michaels. Lorne Michaels by a mile. I just thought that. I listen to every, he's interviewed very infrequently as the producer of Saturday Night Live. I've listened, I could say with somewhat confidence, every single Lorne Michaels interview that's out there. He has a, he has a grasp on comedy production content that is quite rare. And hmm. I would love to talk to him about that. Wow. All right. Last question. Uh, what is one question you have never been able to get a satisfactory answer to? From somebody else or that I've asked to me? That's that you've asked, that you've tried to find the answers to and you've never been able to get an, an answer to that. I know exactly what question I'm thinking of, but I don't want to say it. It's too theologically fraught. It's too theologically <laughs> fraught. Well, here's my thinking. If you want to ask that now, then maybe one of my listeners can get you an answer. I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm, I'm generally, I'm generally too afraid. It has to do with with with, with a, a quirk in what is known as the Hasimas Hagemara, how they canonize the Talmud. Maybe I'll leave it at that. Why did they choose to canonize certain components of the Talmud that don't seem to be relevant for future hmm. generations? That's a great question. Uh, listen, if anybody's out there that knows that answer. Uh, um, you can reach out to uh, to David Bashevkin. And by the and way, God forbid, I don't want anybody to misunderstand me because I don't remember the Torah. Every page of the Torah is, especially the Gemara, is is incredible, incredible, incredible. There are some passages that that the Achronim, that the later commentators acknowledge, are no longer relevant. My question is why? So why did why were they included in the Chasima hmm. in the canonization of the Talmud, so to speak? Uh, we, I can go into a whole bunch of different topics based on just that question that won't answer your question, but like I've discussed those types of things before. Um, so if somebody wants to reach out to you to give you those answers or to ask you anything else, where can they reach you? You can find me on Twitter, Dbash Ideas, and then if you Google around, you'll find everything else. And That's right. My, sure, you can find my cell phone number, my email. <laughs> just don't WhatsApp me right off the bat. I'm going to respond three years later, as yes. I did with you, I think. Yeah, that's, that. that's why it took two months for this to happen. But I'm persistent, so I'm, I'm going to get you. By the way, for anybody, any future potential guests, I, I will track you down if I want you on my show. Um, <laughs> yeah, that you will. That you will. <laughs> um, and um, where can people find your books? You can find my books on Amazon as Synagogue. My book, um, Barog Rach and Tizkor, which is in Hebrew, is on hebrewbooks.org. Top five should be in every major Jewish bookstore or at Israel Bookshop. And the NCSY Haggadah is available through Menucha Publishers. Phenomenal. David Bashevkin, thank you so much for joining us this week. And how much uh, on everything that you're doing. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. My thanks to Rabbi David Bashevkin for joining us this week. Since our conversation, I have purchased his book, Top 5, and can assure you that it's well worth the read. We will link to both of his books in the show notes, as well as his organization, 1840, and his podcast, which I urge you to try out. For my money, it is the best Jewish-themed podcast available now, and yes, I am well aware of who I am excluding by saying that. For now, as always, Kotov. The Jewish Living Podcast is produced by Srelly Pikus. Our theme song is The Band by A.B. Rottenberg. Follow us on Facebook at The Jewish Living Podcast and on Twitter and Instagram at Jewish underscore living. 
You can also email the show at jewishlivingpodcast at gmail.com. The Jewish Living Podcast is recorded in conjunction with the Queen's Jewish Link.